is where the, this is a tune where the instrument gets to be like a bagpipe. And uh, it would be heresy to touch the hair on a cello bow. And this is just where we hold it. So. wonderful fiddler in Washington, D.C., Brendan Mulvihill taught that to me. And it's a, a tune that his grandmother used to sing to him, to sing him to sleep, called The Fair Child. Why have I didn't put it in this? I know. <laughs> very calming. You know, that is, it is kind of my specialty, though. At the end of a stressful day, it's very yes. calming. Yes. So I'm going to do a brief introduction. Yeah. You can either play or read or put it. <laughs> so, good evening to all of you. Uh, I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and delighted to see you all. You didn't um, stay home for fear of the impending tornadoes or whatever. But. 
Um, earlier this year, I heard a wonderful interview um, on Maryland, Maryland Morning on WYPR. Um, it was Tom Hall interviewing Carolyn Zurich. And it, um, he was, they were talking about her new book, Silently Shadows Are Sweeping. And it was through Tom that I made contact with Carolyn and invited her to come to the Pratt and to share her words and her wonderful music. Um, Carolyn is a musician, as you've, some of you have heard just now. She specializes in early music. She's an acclaimed viola da gamba player, and she tours and records with um, the Ensemble Galilee. It's a group she's been playing with for over 20 years. She and her colleagues, this this group, um, played each week, excuse me, for soldiers at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And from those experiences, Carolyn wrote her first book, Between War and Here, Between War and Here, a collection of poems and essays about her experiences playing for those wounded veterans. Um, Her new book, is about the final days of her father and stepmother's lives. And it's a deeply moving portrait of love, loss, finality, and forgiveness. Um, We're pleased to welcome Carolyn here at the Pratt this evening, and it's going to be a nice, intimate um, gathering. So please enjoy and welcome Carolyn. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to be here. I lived in Baltimore until I was 10. It's just great to be back. I feel like I'm coming home. I, I thought about whether to read from Between War and Here or a play. Or, and this morning I was looking at Silently Shadows Are Sweeping, which has, um, Between War and Here has gotten a lot of, a lot of people have read that book. And, um, and I think I'm going to go with Silently Shadows Are Sweeping tonight. Uh, so I'll start at the very beginning and the prelude goes when the year started I could not see the end I did not know where fate would take me take all of us I could not imagine the sorrow and the gifts waiting for me inside our house outside our door when my father came to share the end of his life with us it was funny and strange and hard Later, when death crept in, we thought we were ready. But the lessons weren't over, and again, death came to visit, bringing destruction, forgiveness, and then peace. The first part of the book is called The Cookie Jar. She said, Mama, he was so bony. She was crying. I didn't hug him enough. I'm so sorry, now I can't hug him anymore. When he came to live with us, he was six feet tall and weighed 117 pounds. I knew he was thin, but then I saw him on the examining table in his doctor's office, skin hanging from his bones, beyond thin. For years, we had tried to convince him to come live with us. I can't leave. What if she sets the bed on fire or falls? Who would be there to help? What if she gets in the car while she is drunk? She says she's going to quit, and she has to. I know she'll do it this time. I'll be okay. And then he would smile a crooked smile. Honey, we'll be fine. 
She starts yelling at midnight, Get my vodka! She screams until she doesn't have any voice left. Sometimes it's two or three in the morning. He looks down. I pull the covers up over my head and pretend it isn't happening. His doctor told him he would die if he stayed. I promised it would only be until he got better. He could go home as soon as he gained some weight, got some sleep. He packed a suitcase, left the screaming behind, and moved into our house. You should have someone assess him, see how he really is. You can't assess someone who hasn't slept for two years and is starving. He tried not to sleep too deeply. He needed to make sure he could smell the smoke in case she fell asleep, passed out, while she was smoking in bed. How do you teach someone how to sleep again? The first night, I looked in on him after he'd gone to bed. His gnarly hands held the blanket tight to his face. Dad, I know it's winter. You still have to go outside to smoke. He lights up inside the house and walks really slowly toward the door. Coffee. The man lives on coffee. Are you hungry? No. Kid, I'm fine. I leave a muffin on the counter. Every time I pass by, it's smaller. In the kitchen is a Tupperware container taped to the top a plain piece of paper with these words, Granddad's Cookies. When he and my mother married, she made him a batch of oatmeal raisin cookies. She called him over when the first cookie sheet came out of the oven. He stood at the table and ate all of them. As one of two children, she had never seen anything like that. As one of six children, he knew that if he didn't eat them right then, someone else would. When we moved away from our home in Baltimore, our next-door neighbors gave us a cookie jar. Hand-painted ceramic and 15 inches tall, it said on the top, Cereos and Surix cookie jar. It was a most precious gift to my father. Her father calls. She's going to kill herself. You have to go over to the house. I look over at my dad, knowing he would go. Right away, he would go. I look over at him, his eyes barely seeing, sunken cheeks, dry skin peeling from his hands, flannel shirt hanging off his shoulders, corduroy pants covering stick-like legs. I turn so he can't hear me. You need to call the police, I say to her father. But she's barricaded herself in the house, he says. She's going to kill herself. You need to call the police. I'm not going over. No, no one here can go over. No one. I hang up the phone. She gives the guy who mows the lawn her debit card and her car, sends him to the liquor store. He brings the vodka back. Then he brings his girlfriend over to clean the house. The next time he leaves, he takes the debit card, the car, her jewelry, and miscellaneous electronic entertainment devices. This time, he doesn't come back. They couldn't be sober at the same time. Their relationship started when they were both drunk. He was old enough to be her father, but he wasn't. 
When she soiled the bed, he decided she was too drunk. She needed help. After her first time in rehab, they came into the restaurant where I was a waitress. I didn't offer them a cocktail or wine, but he said, Honey, would you like some wine with dinner? And she said, I don't know. Do you think I should? I don't think one glass will hurt, he said. After another rehab and another rehab, after the program and six months in a halfway house, she was sober. For 13 years, she did not let a drop pass her lips. He was not sober and not the easiest man to live with. He fell down the stairs, hurt his back, took too much phenobarbital, ended up in the hospital for a week. They detoxed him. After seven days, a social worker came. What makes you think you won't start drinking again? He paused. I have a six-week-old granddaughter. Her name is Julia, and I don't want her to know I'm a drunk. It was that simple. It was not that simple. He never drank again. On the 4th of July... That same year, I went to the beach, the place they both loved so much. After a table full of steamed crabs, she stood up to leave, wobbling, her hand on the back of the sofa, pressing against the wall, shoulder leaning on the door jamb to steady herself. When she was out of earshot, I said to him, Dad, she's drinking again. No, she isn't, he said. She hasn't had a drink for 13 years. It was impossible for him to imagine. She spent the next 10 years in and out and in and out and in and out of rehab. One day, when he wouldn't get her a bottle of vodka, she decked him. She laid an 80-year-old man out on the ground. We sat at the dining room table at their house, all of us, my brother and sister, all their kids. It was many years ago. Julia was still in a high chair. Chicken marsala, I remember Julia loved the mushrooms, the creamy sauce. Betsy looked across the table and pointed her finger at Julia, who sat buckled in the high chair. Julia, she said in a boozy, bleary voice, Julia, could you go to the kitchen and get me the salt, honey? It's on the counter. We sat together, John Earl Surick, Jr., age 84, and his daughter, Carolyn Anderson Surick, age 53. We sat together at the round table where we shared dinner every night for those seven weeks. Kiddo, he said, his voice trembling. I want you to know how much I appreciate all that you kids are doing for me. I love you too, Dad. I stood at the sink doing dishes after dinner. I saw him rise from his chair, turn left, and lose his balance. His arms spread wide like a spiral galaxy. He completed a full circle and grabbed the back of the chair, barely averting a catastrophe. I couldn't have gotten there in time, so in that moment of helplessness, I enjoyed the uncontrolled grace of his motion. You make a decision at the beginning Before the beginning, what will I do? If he falls, if he gets the flu, if his lungs start to fill, will I call the doctor or let him go? When his life is sorrow, neglect, 
abuse, helplessness, hurt alcoholism, anger, pain, hunger, sleeplessness, her demons, what will I do? Nothing. I decide that I will do nothing. He grew up in chaos. He was the oldest of six. His mom, Florence, died of cirrhosis at 53. He tried to save her but could not. His youngest sister, Helen, died of throat cancer, smoking and drinking. He brought her home when she was dying. He tried to save her but could not. His middle sister, Anne, died of an overdose. It was an accident that she died, but not an accident that she took an overdose. When he came to live with us, I wondered if our house was too happy. We lacked the drama that had defined his life. It wasn't the lack of drama that he minded. It was the lack of purpose. Before he came to live with us, he drove to the store and the bank every day. He cashed a check at the bank for $30. Everyone knew Mr. Surick. He visited his friend at the Safeway Bakery. She cried when I told her that he had passed. Checked out with the same cashier, the husky-voiced redhead. Now what? The small things. He walked up the driveway to get the newspaper. He made his bed. He was gifted with a vacuum. Never before or after has our house been so tidy. After Betsy was parted from her debit card and her car and her jewelry, her father sent her to rehab in California. There was no communication for weeks. Then she started calling, and he worried. Would he miss a call? Was she ready to come home? How soon could she come home? Could he go home when she came back? How would she get from the airport to the house? The house was a disaster, her bed a mess. Could we help? There was no end to the worry. During those seven weeks when he lived with us, he ate dozens of cookies. He drank hundreds of cups of coffee, sat down for dinner every night with people he loved who loved him back, slept in a warm, safe room in the bed that had belonged to his parents when he was a boy. After those seven weeks, there was something besides skin and bone on his body. There was muscle and tissue and something soft that had been missing when he arrived. I could feel it when I put my arms around him. The scale said it was 17 pounds, but I think it was more than that. The second section is Silver Wings. Betsy came home cured. I did the really hard work. They were great. They had everything, nutrition classes, exercise, acupuncture, massage. I even went surfing. I have the tools now. I know it's going to be hard, but I'm going to get my support system in place. They're not about the meetings. I never liked the meetings. I feel strong, really strong. She got back to the East Coast on a Saturday, and on the following Wednesday, I packed his bag, and he went home. She made his appointments. They went to see the geriatric geriatric doctor, and they were going to have him assessed. An occupational therapist would come to the house. They were putting up handrails in the bathroom. The house was going to be more livable for him. But Betsy said he couldn't sleep, and she didn't know why he couldn't sleep. I knew why. He'd moved back to the place that for 10 years had been ground zero for his living nightmare. 
He could not put his head on the pillow, close his eyes, and let sleep come. He was there for two and a half weeks. In those two and a half weeks, he lost 17 pounds. A call came on a Thursday. He had weakness on his left side, noticeable weakness. The CAT scan said bleeding in the brain. He was going in for surgery that night. My sister Marion, who works at the hospital in surgical scheduling, picked the neurosurgeon. She picked the anesthesiologist. She called in the best team. My brother John is the oldest. He, like my father, is a specialist in trauma, not as a doctor, but as a man. We, as a family, sit in the waiting room, stand by the bed. We are not shaken by bleeding in the brain or the possibility of infection. They cover his head with one of those sky-blue fabric caps held on with an elastic around the edge and wheel him into the operating room. A few minutes later, they wheel him back out. He had a few things left to say. I do not know what he said to my brother. I do not know what he said to my sister. When it was my turn, I went to the side of his bed and he said, Honey, whatever happens is fine. Any way it goes, it's good. I love you. As they wheeled him back down the hall, he gave us a shaky wave. In recovery, he worried about whether the insurance premium had been paid on his car. It wasn't as straightforward as we would have liked, said the surgeon, but he did well. He's tough. At 84, after brain surgery, worry about car insurance is good. His prognosis is good, he continued. And of course, there are many things we need to look out for. I wondered how many things... Exactly. He was moved to a private room with a window looking out on the parking garage. I don't know if it was the first night or the second. When the nurses came in to do something, his rage rose and rose fury on his face, hatred in his eyes, his mouth locked in a snarl, his arms slashing through the air, his legs thrashing, finding their target. That's it, she said. That hurt. They tied his ankles to the bed. They wrapped his wrists with white cloth and tied them down. They put huge padded white mittens on his hands. He struggled, arms pulling up side to side, head side to side, knees bending up until they were caught in the white shackles. They sent me into the hallway until he was fully sedated. Still moaning, he lay motionless in the bed. One morning, he said, Honey, I can't find my bathing suit. I've looked everywhere. I can't find it. He was hard to understand generally, but he had clearly said bathing suit. Let me go look for it. The blue one? Yes, the blue one. I left the hospital room, walked down the hallway, waited a few minutes, returned to his room. Couldn't find it, Dad. I looked everywhere. Do you want to go swimming in the ocean or the pool? The ocean, he said, as if it was the most ridiculous question he had ever heard. After a week of being tied to the bed, no food by mouth, with seizure-like involuntary muscle contractions every time they injected him with Haldol, he said to me, Honey, I need your help. Sure, Dad. What can I do? I need to get out of here, he said. 
I have an aversion to lying to dying people. I can get you out of here, but you're going to have to go to another hospital. No more hospitals, he said. They let him have some solid food, but he had no gag reflex. He was aspirating and his lungs started to fill. When I came in the next day, the doctor had prescribed an antibiotic. No more drugs. Before surgery, he had trouble buttoning his shirt. Before they opened his skull and scraped away the blood clots, some days were good, some days not so good. Before they tied him to a bed for a week, he had trouble with stairs. Before he lost the ability to eat solid food, he was barely hanging on to a life worth living. A proud man, he did not want to be fed by someone else or wear a diaper. He did not want to live in a nursing home waiting for the end. There are things worse than dying. I called his sister in Florida and his brother in Philadelphia. It's time, I said, time to come see him. Time to say goodbye to your brother, the oldest, the caretaker, the meddler, the busybody, the one who needed to save everyone. We stood in his room, held his hand, laughed, told family stories. We sat silently. He never opened his eyes. They went home. We started our vigil. My brother John sat next to the bed, reading a paperback. I can be here every day, he said. He did not miss a day. My sister Marion stopped by, walking over from her station at regular intervals. I brought my instrument and played every piece I knew. When I couldn't think of another piece to play, my brother said, can you play somewhere over the rainbow? The water is wide, simple gifts. In Christ there is no east or west. I played on. We lived those timeless days listening to our father breathe. I had the late shift. Julia would fall asleep a little after nine and I would drive to the hospital. Standing beside his bed, holding his hand, Sometimes, stroking his forehead, I softly sang, Ragtime lullaby, dream your troubles away, the five pennies, the boating song. I never knew if he knew I was there. And every night, in case it was the last, I recited a list to him, Dad, we love you. And I would name all of us and all of them. We were the ones still living They were the ones waiting on the other side to welcome him home. When his lungs started to fill, I remembered that they used to say pneumonia is the old man's friend, but then his lungs cleared. They could have treated him. He could have gotten a feeding tube. They could have moved him to a nursing home. Who are we to say it's over? Who am I to call hospice? I am my father's daughter, that day, the angel of death. Palliative care, they call it, but I call it heaven. When the hospice doctor came to see him for the first time, he said, in my opinion, with all my years as a hospice physician, he won't live another two days. He surely won't live a week. Let's keep him here where he's comfortable. But he did live another week and they didn't think he would survive the ambulance ride to the hospice house. They didn't know him. 
They said he had opioid toxicity. The morphine wasn't working anymore. They had run out of Dilaudid. They could do nothing for him that morning. His jaw was working back and forth. Gone was the peaceful stillness. Betsy came from rehab with a minder. She started drinking again before his surgery. And I asked her not to visit him that day. I said he was having a tough time angrily. She said, I am his wife. I belong in there. You can't keep me away. And she stormed into his room. That night, coming back late from playing in Washington, I stopped to sing to him. His jaw was working. Worried about my father's pain, I went looking for a nurse. The nurse came in, stood by the bed for a few minutes, and said, I'm looking at his face, and I don't see pain. It had not occurred to me to look for pain. I looked, and there was no furrowed brow, no clenched teeth. What do you see, I said. I think he's actively dying. I think he's trying to communicate. Okay, then. Do you want me to give him something for the pain? Nope. He's good. I stand with him, stroking his hand, and his eyes open. I had not seen those clear blue eyes for 11 days. Dad, I'm so happy to see you. I want you to know how much we love you, all of us. And for the last time, I name all of the living and all of the dead who love him. Dad, I know you did your best. We grew up in hard times, and we're all okay now. There's nothing left to forgive. You've given me a wonderful life, and John and Marion, too. I want you to know, Dad, we're all fine. I look into him. I see him. He sees me one last time. His body convulses and calms. I wait to see if he will open his eyes again or die. He does not open his eyes again or die. Before dawn, I wake up, free, not a worry in the world, no sense of pain or despair in the universe. My heart, a silver-winged bird, rising toward the sun. I wonder... After such sorrow and suffering, how can I be this happy? Maybe it was because I saw him last night. I saw those blue eyes one more time. I close my eyes. Ten minutes later, the phone rings. He had passed from this world to the next. For weeks, I struggled, thinking I had failed. I could not help feeling I should have done more. And then I realized that when he came to live with us, he was too tired, too hungry, too worried, too alone. He needed to be safe and loved before he could summon the courage to die. Our gift to him, his gift to us. And the last section is the fire. When Julia said the fire marshal had called, I thought it was about our bonfires. We have prodigious bonfires. Then he called again. She brought me the phone. He asked if I knew John Surick Sr. and if I knew Elizabeth Jordan and asked if I was related to her. Yes, she's my stepmother. Was there a fire? Is she okay? I asked. He said, I'm on my way to your house. I'll be there in 20 minutes. Is she okay? I'm on my way, he said. It was July 8th, three months and two days after my father died. Yes, I am next of kin. 
He said the fire burned so hot it took 50 firefighters two hours to put it out. There's very little to identify. She was burned beyond recognition. These are the phrases you never want to hear firsthand from a fire marshal in a conversation about someone you know. Burned beyond recognition, the fire burned so hot. Identification by dental records. Here are the words you do want to hear. She was probably unconscious. It could have been smoke inhalation. There was no one else in the house at the time of the fire. Stuart from our church who prayed at my father's bedside more than once arrived at our house right after the fire marshal. Someone from the fire department called the church where my father's funeral had been looking for someone, anyone who knew Elizabeth Jordan. Stuart did not wait to call me to find out if I needed comfort or a hand. He stood next to me as the fire marshal gave as many details as he could. That is what fire marshals do. They give as many details as they can. And then he said, If there's anything you want from the house, you should go now. Those are the the other words you do not want to hear from a fire marshal on the day of a fatal fire in your father's house. My brother arrived next. His daughter had seen the fire on the evening news. I pulled on my knee-high rubber boots and grabbed the baseball cap that said Hollywood Land, a gift from my friend Tinker. Once I asked her, what can I do? Betsy can't seem to stop drinking, and she's going to kill my dad. For 13 years she was fine, and now she's in the grip of the monster. Tinker, who knows meetings and sponsors and sobriety, said to me, it can be progressive. Sometimes after someone's been sober for a long time, when they start drinking again, it's an even more vicious disease. She's going to end up on the street, in jail, or dead. That's just how it is for some people. When she said dead, I thought she meant cancer, cirrhosis, congestive heart failure. I did not think fire. My dad thought fire, not me. I had not seen Betsy since my dad's funeral. I called and called. She never picked up. I went by the house, knocked on the door. Her car was there, but she didn't come to the door. We had one conversation about things before the funeral. It was in the visitor's room at rehab. I asked if we could have my dad's car. No, I'd like to have the car in case I go on a road trip, she said. I asked if we could have our family silver given to my mother and father when they married. Nope, it's the only silver I have. Have you seen the cookie jar, the one the Cereos gave us when we left Baltimore? I was thinking about putting some of my dad's ashes in it. I haven't seen that for years, she said carelessly. I do not care much for things, at least not before he died. I did not care much for things. That changed. It is still light when we arrive at the house. Yellow tape is wrapped around crime scene or just plain danger it makes no difference the front door is locked still windows exploded outwards from the heat before the fire there was an upstairs porch on the back of the house after the fire there is no upstairs at all on the back of the house just sky we walk in carefully water drips on our heads sometimes we slog through standing water sometimes soggy rugs below us charred rafters above i go looking for the silverware There's no logic after tragedy. 
what could possibly be so important that it's worth entering a house where, some, where earlier in the day someone died in a fire? I started in the kitchen, where the contents of the drawers had spontaneously combusted. No actual fire but heat so fierce the plastic utensils lay molded into a shape determined by gravity. The papers charred except for a small yellow pad with notes for a speech written in my father's hand for the day his youngest brother became a federal judge. He did not go to the swearing-in because Betsy was too drunk to travel to Washington, D.C., 45 minutes away. I curse her. The daily silverware is in the kitchen. The special silver occasion silverware is in the china cabinet in the dining room. The family silverware is unknown. My arms are covered with soot. I rinse my blackened hands in water dripping from above. After she died, the fire burned through the floor in her bedroom. Bottles of vodka are an effective accelerant. Dropping what was left of her bed onto the kitchen floor, I'm there beside it. It's getting dark. I stand alone in what is left of my father's house, of their house. Horrifying and beautiful. Before my father died, she could not live in this world, could not bear sobriety. After, racked with guilt, life for her was not an option. And now, after a fire that burns so hot, there was nothing left but bone. My heart feels Elizabeth Ann Jordan as a silver-winged bird. She's free, joyously, sublimely, finally, unchained from this life. I open the door in the small closet under the stairs where nothing has been touched by the fire or the smoke or the water, and on the floor next to the hot water heater, golf clubs and hand-painted trays, and a few other treasures is the cookie jar. I run out the front door, cradling it in my arms. Standing next to John, I take off the lid, and inside, two yellow pages two yellowed pages with kind words written about the eccentric teenager I was in 1976 and spoken by my favorite teachers at my high school graduation. My father saved those two pages for 36 years, leaving them for me to find, saying in death the words he could not speak in life. In my brother's arms I weep. One last pass through the house. I'm on my hands and knees looking under the couch in in the living room where I find a photo album of Betsy's family. I suddenly understand that they hid precious things under other things. I gingerly creep up the stairs, making sure the floor is stable, go to the front of the house, not consumed by the fire, to my father's bedroom. Against the wall is his shoeshine box and his old typewriter. The ceiling had fallen onto the bed. I throw the drywall onto the floor, then the mattress and the box springs. And there, blackened and sooty, is a wooden box with a dark red felt lining inside our family's silverware. The next morning, I call her brother, who tells me that her father had sent a nurse to pick her up and take her to rehab and their nurse arrived at the house as the firefighters were putting out the fire. I cannot speak. 
I can't bear the thought that help was so close. I remember how well she looked in the spring, how hopeful she was about the future. I am crushed. A few days later, I hear the rest of the story. She'd gone to Connecticut to stay with her father, and after three weeks of sobriety, she said to him, You don't want me to drink anymore, and I want to drink. Take me to the train. I want to go home. And he took her to the train. For a few days, we think that the insurance on the house and its contents will be split between her family and our family because both names are on the policy. But he died without a will, and she died without a will. Everything will go to her father. I rage. I cannot forgive her for the way she made my father's life hell. In the 13 years she was sober, she went back to school. She got her master's in social work and became a middle school guidance counselor. I cannot forgive her for the years she stole from us as he tried to save her. She bought them a condo at the beach where they could sit in the evenings on a screened-in porch and watch the summer shadows lengthen. I cannot forgive her for the many ways he loved her that she could never see. When he was drinking, he could be mean and cruel. She stayed by his side, knowing it would be better in the morning. He would be better in the morning. The bitterness of my grief imprisons me in my suffering. After my father died, I could find him in my heart. He would visit me. I felt his presence, the comfort of his being. But when Betsy died, they were together in death and sharing what they never could in life. I did not want to feel her joy, their happiness. I could not welcome them. I held my bitterness close every hour of every day. Knowing forgiveness would set me free, I could not forgive. Peace came to me with this truth. Betsy was not the villain, my father not a hero. She did not chain him to the house. He could not extinguish the desire to save her, ignited the day his mother at breakfast said to him, the eldest child, I love you, honey. Could you hand me that bottle of four roses? Silently, the shadows swept over them. We pile into the car on the last Saturday in July, Dave and Heidi, the two, kid, the two kids and me, heading to the ocean with the ashes of my father that I'd saved for Betsy in a Ziploc bag in the trunk. After delays from a storm, traffic at the Bay Bridge, we arrive at Bethany Beach. The water is perfect. Waves like the waves of your dreams. We bob them, swim, body surf, goof, lost in time in the bliss of a summer afternoon, sweet love, a family at the beach. We pack up, put more quarters in the meter, go to dinner. Julia and I head back to the boardwalk for frozen custard, and the rest of the gang goes back to the car to drop towels and grab T-shirts. Watching lightning in the sky and waiting for them, I hear a man on his cell phone say, the storm was in Easton 30 minutes ago. It'll be here in 10. I call Dave, hurry, we don't have much time. They arrive just as the beach patrol cruises down the waterline, lights flashing, speakers blaring, everyone off the beach. As they pass, we sprint across the sand to the water's edge. 
were the only people in sight. I open the bag, and the gust of wind blows my father's ashes into the air, up into the sky, into the surf. In in seconds, they disappear. I wave and say, bye, Dad. He's gone. Wind and ocean carrying his ashes and my bitterness away. Thank you. So, you're welcome. It's uh, as I was reading, I was I thought, wow, this is a lot of sadness, isn't it? But I guess it, when uh, I I think about the incredible blessings of the way that tragedy can be, you know. That, that there are so many different ways of looking at things that are incredibly difficult. But um, in the end, there are gifts everywhere. So. so, would you like to hear some music? <laughs> would you like to hear some happy music? Because <laughs> I can do that. Oh, here's... Okay, here's a question. Would you like to hear happy music or somewhere over the rainbow?
pick something in tune. Happy Peace Before Summer with the Room.
Does anyone have any questions? Yes. Yes, it's actually, um, I have the, the other book, Between War and Here, is all about those guys. And because, this is really funny, I, uh, um, I thought the whole world should know about them. And we've, we started work there in November of 2008, and we've met such amazing men and women there, and their experiences are so extraordinary. And so I wrote that book thinking that, I want that the whole world would read it. And, uh, and I could not get it to catch fire the way that I thought it would. And then one of our PTSD gals um, said, you have to give it away. And I was like, I can't do that. And, and it seemed a little weird to me, but I'm, I'm going to go get the book so I can read you this poem. Um, and, and so... I ha we had these on the table every week. We still go to Walter Reed every week and also go down to Fort Belvoir. And, um, and the book, so now men and women at Walter Reed pick up the book and they take the book with them. And one of the things that happens is, is that people will say, um, they'll say, you have to read this poem. This, ex this exactly describes what it's like. And so this lady came up and she said to me, uh, she said to one of her friends, you have to read this one. This one is all about here. And it's called Rule One. And it says, I never ask, how are you? I say, how's it going? It's either going okay or it's not. But if I ask, how are you? Then they have to tell me how they really are. Not such a great idea. And, and so this woman really latched onto this poem and she said, that's the one. And, and they're, I mean, they're extraordinary people there. There's this poem called The Captain, and it says, after she graduated from high school, she had to choose West Point or Juilliard. She was wounded in Iraq, a spinal cord injury. I, she, I don't care if I ever move my head from side to side, she said. I keep telling them just to make it so I can do this again. She closed her eyes, tilted her head, tucked her chin, her left hand rose, finger resting on the absent fingerboard, her right hand in the air, holding an imagined bow. It's just extraordinary people. So many extraordinary people. So what did, um, so then you started giving the book away? Right, so then, and, and, I, and I couldn't figure out how I could afford it, and, um, and my church started funding it. The St. Margaret's Church in Annapolis just gave me money to say, go print the book. And so now we give the books away, and we've given away hundreds of books. We give away, and one of the interesting things about this book and Walter Reed is, um, I'll, I'm going to read a, a poem. It's called Their Son. Through the electric doors into the bright sunlight, they went with their son, an embroidered eagle on the back of the wheelchair. My mom put it there, he said to a stranger. I was eavesdropping as I walked past. I smiled and looked back at his boyish embarrassment. But there was little left of him. Both legs amputated high, half of one arm gone. 
His dad was quick to offer help carrying the boxes and instruments. Let me carry that for you. Please, I can help. And we, we see the most badly injured guys and gals on, at our time there. And um, a man came up to me a few months ago, and he was crying, and he said, I know him. I know him. I know Jerry. And this person has been gone for years. But because when I was writing this book, I, I couldn't use anything that would identify any of the people personally because of privacy issues. You cannot take pictures of Walter Reed. You cannot name names. You cannot in any way identify the people there. And so I was really careful to, to not make it clear who was who when I was writing this book. But the benefit of that is that now it's an eternal book. You know, now the people who are reading it at Walter Reed now, they say, oh, the guy with, who's missing both arms and, and one leg, and that's him. And, and, and so in that way, it, it becomes a book that's incredibly helpful, continues to be incredibly helpful, even after the people who the book is really about have left. Um, Putting words to experiences they are still trying to put words to. Right, and, and, and in a way that, that they personally identify with to this moment. Um, it's, a, it's an extraordinary place to be. There's some things. That one of the poems is called Shoes. The mind wanders. Does he put the shoe on before he puts, puts the leg on? I mean, one time we were standing, I was, we're sitting there in the lobby playing, and, you know, we play, and, and we play all from memory so we don't have to look down at music. So you can see what's going on around you. And a whole bunch of guys had gone, it was summertime, to Long Island on a bus. And they'd come back on the bus, and, you know, like in a hotel, those carts on the hotel with wheels that are gold, and they've got a rack across the top. So all of these suitcases are coming back, and then all of the legs are on top of one of the carts. And, I mean, there's just like 15 of them there. And you, you, it's part of the world. It, it, it's, and it's a beautiful place because it's a community where everybody's blown up. I mean, I, I heard this guy talking last week, a wounded warrior talking, and he was talking about the fact that when he was at Walter Reed, he didn't think twice about his injuries because everybody's there injured in some way. And so they're joking about it and they're laughing about it. And because our job is to make the world a better place, our job is not to sympathize with them. Our job is to be there, be present, play beautiful music, and make the day better. And, uh, and so there are times when we see things that we are... That are you can't imagine, but you you can't let anyone know that you feel anything about that. You know, you sort of smile and joke and move on, and and then when you leave and later on, you can sort of go, oh, my heart. But when we're there, we're just, we have a job, and our job is to make beautiful music. And one of the things that, when we we were first at Malone House, which is at the old Walter Reed and the lobby, which is really, it was sort of like the lobby of a beautiful hotel, but everybody there had been blown up. And, and there was a guy sitting there um, in a wheelchair, and he'd lost both of his legs. And, and he was 
sort of nodding in and out. He, he, he had recently come there, so he had recently been injured. And he was just sort of listening. And, and other guys would, like two or three times, other wounded warriors would walk up to him and they'd tap him on the shoulder and they'd say, hey, buddy, you know, do you want us to take you back to your room? And he'd be like, no, can't you hear the music? It's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. And he would just sort of conduct. And he just sat there. And our job, especially at Malone House, was just to provide a place where people could close their eyes and be someplace else. Be someplace that doesn't have to do with small arms fire, doesn't have to do with IEDs, doesn't have to do with any of that. Just, it's a, a place of beauty. And, um, and to also make it so that when people walked in the door, they felt like they were in the nicest Austrian hotel. You know, there's a string, there's the people playing, and, and, and it really, you really c- can make a room feel not so much like a hospital and more like a beautiful spot by just putting live music in it. And, and the very first day I was there, I had this extraordinary experience and, um, and with a wounded warrior and, and I realized immediately that it didn't take very much of my life and my energy and my time to make someone's day better who has a much harder path than me. And so I called in my gal friends, and we started doing it. And, um, and we haven't stopped. And we've, re- we've recorded two CDs that we give away. We've given away 4,000 CDs to wounded warriors and their families in the last four years. And it's this really peaceful, beautiful music. And they come up to us all the time, and they're like, I can sleep. Because sleep is one of the things that's very hard to come by, especially for traumatic brain injury guys and PTSD guys and gals. And um, this guy comes up and he's like, I slept for four hours. <laughs> yes. And, and, and mothers come over and they're like, I put this on for the baby and it's really good for my husband. <laughs> so, so we sort of developed this specialty of playing music that puts people to sleep, which I don't think other people aspire to in music. I mean, it's not, it's not at the top of the list. Let's book them. They put the whole audience to sleep. But, um, but that's what we do and... and uh, and it's been extraordinary. I mean, really, really extraordinary. And there is a funny, there's, I know I haven't said much that's funny tonight, but um, there is a funny story here. It's, it's about um, this Irish guy. And he, uh, he said, this is the first poem called, Irish number one. He said, "My mother's an, we're sit, we sit sometimes sit and have lunch with them." He said, "My mother's an angel." Laughing, I said, "No woman is an angel." He said, "No, my mother is an angel." There were ten boys in my family. One was killed in action. Of the remaining nine, eight have purple hearts. When his grandmother came over from Dublin, she got as many of his brothers together as she could, and when they were all sitting in the same room, she said to them. My boys, you make fine soldiers, but you've got to learn to duck. <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty Why funny. Well, you yeah, I um, I've when I wrote this book, 
I did a show with Tom Hall around 9-11 on the 10th anniversary. And then um, when we had the CD, uh, I went back and talked to him about our work at Walter Reed. And so then last year, when I wrote this book, the new book, I sent him a copy of it. And, uh, and he said, wow, let's do this. You know, come and talk about this. And at the time, I wrote this book. When I wrote Between War and Here, I had a marketing strategy in my head. I mean, I thought, I've, I've got talking, talking points. I have, this is great human interest. There are all sorts of things I could market about this. And when I wrote this book, I had no plan. I, uh, and I wasn't sure how to talk about it. And I didn't feel like I had a good way to market it. And um, I sent it out to my friends who are in recovery, and it meant the world to them. And, uh, and then I sent it out to fr- some friends of mine in Wyoming last year, and it meant the world to them. And they were, they were people who were tangentially related to alcoholism. And, and, and I thought, well, this book will find a home, just as, as this one didn't have a home for a long time until it found its home at Walter Reed. Um, this one, I feel like, is going to find its home, and it's probably going to find its home with um, people in recovery and people who, whose families have been strongly affected by substance abuse and alcoholism. And... I, and also, the, uh, f- someone read this book a couple of weeks ago, and the part that mattered to her was um, the part about dying. Her mother had passed away this year, and she'd been with her mom. And, and there's so many things that we don't talk about, like the parts of when you start thinking about that there are things worse, you know, and and when when to say we're done. And and I feel like that is a conversation worth having, you know, that, that sometimes we, we tend to sort of keep quiet about some of the problems that have to do with the end of life when really there are so many gifts in those problems. So. Well, we're sort of conditioned to, um, to prolong life. Right. And to, and to want to hang on to yeah. With people we love. Well, my mother was horrified when I called hospice. And I said, well, let's talk about the things that are your quality of life issues. You know, what are the, what are the things that are important to you for your dignity? And, and after we sort of went through what her list was, she was like, okay, I understand. You know, because people have ideas and desires about the end of their lives that sometimes are simpler than we understand. And having the conversation, it can be so great if you can have that conversation. Like when my dad said to me, no more hospitals. That was all I needed to hear, to say, okay, I will help you make that happen. So... When he's get me out of here. Get me out of here, right. Yeah. yeah. With my blue bathing suit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, we do, and CDs if you want really calm music. <laughs> we, and, and actually, I'll, I'll give a little plug too. Um, the trio that plays at Walter Reed every week is doing a benefit at um, the Church of the Nativity here on York Road on June 22nd. It's an Episcopal church at, um, it's near the Panera on York Road, sort of by uh, Northern Parkway, right up the street from Northern Parkway. And Is that at your website? No. No, no but it's at their website. <laughs> yeah. It's at 7 in the evening. Yeah. It's a Saturday, Sunday, the 22nd of June at 7 at night. Yeah. And the music that you do in Ensemble Galilee is also not music that puts you to sleep. No. So there is yeah. a great variety. Yeah. <laughs> There's Trio Galilee and Ensemble yeah. Galilee. Yeah. Well, and, and you did the, the recording because that's what they wanted. They right. wanted music to sleep on. Exactly. Yeah. Not recommend it for the car. No, not, it's not good for long road trips. It really isn't. It's way too relaxing for long road trips. When I was editing the CD, I, put, I was on the Baltimore Beltway, and I was like, wow, I'm going to fall asleep. I cannot do this work here. I'm just like... Is your mother still alive? She is. She lives with us. Yes. At one point, it was my mother and my stepfather and my father <laughs> who all lived with us. It was quite a house full. <laughs> and my daughter. And it's like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a big world. It's a big world. I, we love our college kids. We also sponsor midshipmen from the Naval Academy. So, so th- which is interesting because then, you know, I sit at the table with these young men who are going off to be SEALs, and I say, so why do you want to be a SEAL? And they say, they look at me and say, we get to shoot at people and, exp- and blow things up all day long. What's better than that? <laughs> and so, you know, on the one hand, you've got these young men, and then you've got the guys at Walter Reed. You know, this is my continuum, are, is the, the young men and women at the Naval Academy who are so enthusiastic about being good soldiers, and then the soldiers who have given their everything. It's... Um, On Saturday, um, we hosted a program for Luis Carlos Montalban, who um, he wrote a book called Until Tuesday. Maybe you've read it. I I think it was a bestseller. But he um, was, he did two tours in Iraq and has suffered from PTSD and had a brain injury and was becoming an alcoholic. Until he got this dog, right. this service dog, yeah. and the dog is about seven, I think, and it's, I can't remember if it's a male or a female dog, but um, she's this beautiful, really large golden retriever, and um, and so he he was here. He also did a program for kids at the Bowman's Library, and. Um, it was interesting, we were talking about it today, because 
he spent a lot of time talking about why, about his childhood and why he wanted to be a soldier. And he always wanted to be a soldier. And, and you know, he talked a lot about politics and policy and war. And, and most of us were just wanting him to talk about the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we see. Saved his life. Yeah. And he he wrote this. He wrote a book for adults um, about that. And then he he has a new picture book out that you know for younger children, first, second graders, um, about you know about the dog. And he did not do a lot of tricks, but apparently the day before with the children, he had you know he put two see through her cases. Hmm. And she, she brings in the shoes in the morning. And... There, we see more and more service dogs at Walter Reed, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a really well, beautiful it was, thing. It was really obvious when he finally got to the dog part. Um, you know, it was, um, it was really obvious that this dog had saved his life, and that he has a lot of, he has issues with balance. He walks with a cane. And, and and it was cute because the, the dog was lying on the floor. And then at some point she got up and sort of, you know, came in between his legs and, and you know, looked at him and I thought, she wants you to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah. But, um, One of our, our beautiful young guys who was a traumatic brain injury guy just got a dog. And I saw him in the garage at Walter Reed with this puppy. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be a new world for him, you know, really. Yeah. Well, and that's what, that was obvious, that yeah. this dog saved his life. Yeah, yeah, that's so, true. For those of us who are dog lovers, we understand. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Yep, 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 for sure. Yeah. Oh. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.